This evening we come to the eighth of the Minor Prophets, the book of Habakkuk. And it is a most interesting little book in every way. It has from its first appearance always been a blessing to the multitudes of God's people. Its verses are often quoted, and not only the most famous of all, Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous or the just shall live by faith. That's the most oft-quoted uh, verse from the little book of Habakkuk. But there are quite a number of other verses that you find in common parlance amongst Christian people the world over. For instance, chapter 1, verse 5, I am working a work in your days, which ye will not believe, though it be told you. So often one hears that little verse. And then again, this one, for the vision in chapter 2, verse 3, for the vision is yet for the appointed time, and it hasteth toward the end, and shall not lie, though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not delay. And then in chapter 2 and verse 14, for the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. And then in chapter 3 and verse 2, revive thy work in the midst of the years. And then of course the last verses of chapter 3 from verse 17 to verse 19. All these are often quoted. You, they are, as it were, verses of the, of the Word of God, which are, generally speaking, generally speaking, known amongst God's people. And then the New Testament quotes this little book a number of times in an important way, particularly the little phrase in Hebrew, uh, in Habakkuk chapter two and verse four but the just shall live by faith. That is quoted in a most important way in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. It is quoted again in a most important way in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 11. And again it is quoted in an important way in Hebrews 10, 37 and 38. Paul quoted um, this verse in verse 5 of chapter 1 when he was speaking to um, Jews in one particular city when he quoted this he said that the Lord had said that he was doing a work in their days which they would not believe even if they saw it. It's quoted many times even in the New Testament. This is quite remarkable because, as we remember from last week, the little book of Nahum is hardly ever quoted. And you hardly ever hear it referred to by God's people. There are few people who ever seem to find um, a blessing out of the little book of Nahum, although I trust we have. But the book of Habakkuk has always been a popular book and has always been a quoted book. Um, it is, in that way, um, very much better known. It has also an unusual composition. The psalm added to the revelation Habakkuk had in chapter 1 and chapter 2, we have it here in chapter 3, is obviously intentional. 
And this makes it quite unique, for no other prophetic book has got a psalm within it. That, again, is quite unusual and, as I, I say again, obviously intentional. It has this in common with the book of uh, Jonah, that the message of both Jonah and um, uh, Habakkuk lies within the experience of the prophet and not within his ministry. You will remember that in the little book of Jonah we have only one single sentence of the ministry of the prophet Jonah. And in this book of Habakkuk we have in, in one sense very little of the actual ministry of the prophet Habakkuk. The message in the book of Jonah we discovered in the relationship of Jonah to the Lord and the Lord to Jonah and what happened. And in this little book of Habakkuk we discover the message again within the relationship of Habakkuk to the Lord and the Lord to Habakkuk. The book for the most part, this little book for the most part, is taken up in fact with conversations of Habakkuk with the Lord. In one or two places they are rather fiery conversations because Habakkuk has got a big argument on with the Lord and um, therefore it is all the more interesting. Again, it is helpful to note that this book, like the book of Ezekiel, uh, is not the record of spoken ministry. But from the very beginning, it seems, was intended to be read. Now, there are some of the prophets who first spoke and then put down into writing what they had said. And Ezekiel is in some ways singular in that we believe that from the beginning he probably wrote his message because of the very um, obvious literary style. Of, of the book. It had, bears no semblance of, it, of being actually spoken. And this is so with the little book of Habakkuk as well. It was intended to be um, read from the beginning. Get just a little idea of that when the Lord spoke to um, Habakkuk in chapter 2 and in verse 2. He tells him, write the vision and make it plain upon tablets. Those are the clay tablets. Um, write the vision and make it plain on tablets. In other words, from the very beginning, this uh, particular um, uh, record of what happened with the Lord uh, and Habakkuk was to be uh, in written form. Habakkuk had an argument with the Lord. In fact, it's been said that he arraigns not the unsaved, nor the people of God, but the Lord. And the only other person that comes a little near to this is, of course, the prophet Jeremiah. Habakkuk, in fact, has a very real argument with the Lord, and it's not a superficial argument. It comes because he is a free thinker. Of all the prophets, Habakkuk is probably the most original and the most free. And somehow or other, in his relationship with the Lord 
and in his ministry, he comes up against a very big problem. And for Habakkuk, there was no way around it. The problem had got to be faced and had got to be thrashed out. He was not, uh, as it were, the kind of person who could shirk what was a real intellectual problem as well as a moral problem. He got to face the thing. And uh, um, it is because of this deep-seated and very real problem that the prophet comes up against that we have this wonderful little book of Habakkuk. Although it, those, those people are often very difficult people because they are so meticulous and want to be so absolutely, they want to have everything taped and clear and tied up. Um, nevertheless, we've got to thank the Lord that Habakkuk was such because we would never have had this little book and we would never have been able to learn this lesson that he has to teach us. It was because he came up against something and refused to let it go. You know, he says in one place, I shall get myself up into the watchtower and I shall stand there and see what the Lord will say concerning my complaint. That's the kind of man that Habakkuk was. There was not going to be any messing about with him. He was going to get up into the watchtower. He was going to go on with his ministry. He was going to go on with his ministry of prayer and watchfulness. But he was going to be there and he wasn't going to do anything else until he got an answer to his complaint. Till, till his problem was solved. Now, we mustn't say any more because it will take away later when we come to the key to this little book. But you see, his problem was a real one concerning why the Lord allows and seemingly promotes and more than promotes but uses evil. That was his problem. Now, to some of you, it may not be a problem. And it may seem to some of you that you, that really why um, Habakkuk nearly had to come to a standstill over such a problem, uh, was it really so necessary? Was it so vital? But it has very much more to it than that. His problem was, why does the Lord use evil people and evil things? Is it, in fact, morally right? In other words, he is almost questioning whether God is moral. That's simply how far and deep it goes. How can God use Satan? How can God use evil? How can God use evil systems? How can God use evil people? This was the great question and problem of Habakkuk. Nahum has dealt with the justice of God and the final triumph of that justice. Now Habakkuk is going to deal with the inexplicable and mysterious ways God reaches his ends. Yeah. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan God's work in vain. God 
is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. This is the best commentary on this book of Habakkuk. How does God reach his end? We've all got our preconceptions, and furthermore, we've all got our biases, our prejudices. We would like to think that the Lord's going to reach them this way or that way. But the problem with this little, the problem of Habakkuk is that sometimes the Lord takes a course that seems to completely contradict everything in order to reach his end. This is the problem. And I would like to say this. This little book is dealing with servants of the Lord who get too big. And all of us get too big sometimes for God's work and God's purpose. Habakkuk had to learn a deep and painful lesson before he came back in a new way to his ministry in the purpose of God. This little book is a cutting down to size of all the servants of the Lord when they get out of place and when they get a little bit too big um, and so on. Well, we come to that later. In Job, this problem has been dealt with in a more personal way. It is really the same problem that the book of Job deals with, but it is in a more personal way, you see. Here, we are dealing with it in the book of Habakkuk in a more general way. Habakkuk's style is one of considerable literary power and of lyrical quality. I think you will notice that from the psalm that we have read together. His psalm is as good as some of the best in the Psalter. The book is holy in poetic form. Now, are there, are there any things we can discover about the authorship and the date of this little book? The book claims in Habakkuk 1 and verse 1 to be the uh, work of Habakkuk, the burden or oracle or revelation which Habakkuk the prophet did see. Apart from this one sentence, we have no direct knowledge about the author at all. In the great amount of discussion amongst scholars, there is no real agreement over the unity or the authorship or the date of this book. Some would only ascribe Habakkuk 3 to him, and they would make him the compiler of Habakkuk 1 and 2. Others would ascribe Habakkuk 1 and 2 to Habakkuk and would um, make the uh, psalm in Habakkuk 3 a product of the Persian or Maccabean era. Still others say the book is of a composite authorship. It has quite a number uh, of authors. Many critics, because of the obscurity in the Hebrew text and the Septuagint variations of it, have felt obliged to rearrange the text to help us. Now, whilst we have to admit that there are difficulties, in particular the obscurity of the original text in Hebrew, 
uh, certain parts of it anyway, there does not seem to be sufficient evidence to put aside the authorship of Habakkuk. Apart from anything else, we have absolutely no clue to an alternative. Then again, in support of Habakkuk's authorship, it may not be a strong support, but it is a support. In theme, there seems to be a clear unity throughout this book. Now, I hope all of you have read the book of Habakkuk, because otherwise, in going over these more technical points, they just don't mean much to you. But if you've read the book of Habakkuk, I think even a superficial reading will uh, bring you to the conclusion that there is a unity of theme. The difficulty is the psalm. It's such a singular composition uh, as a prophetic book that to have, first of all, the ordinary revelation or oracle or burden which the prophet saw, and then have this psalm, as it were, seemingly tacked on the end, um, has made for the difficulty. But if you put aside all that and read right through, I think you will come to this conclusion that there is a unity of theme from beginning to end of this little book. It's, it's held together in the most compact way. The unity of this little book is also supported by similarities of language that are present in all three chapters. That seems at any rate to be some evidence. And again it's important to note that we have here not so much a record of ministry as we have said earlier as of the personal conflict in the prophet's life behind his ministry. This book could conceivably cover a number of years. You see, when he went up into his watchtower and um, uh, said he would stand there to see when the Lord would answer his complaint, we have no idea whether he had a long delay. Uh, quite a number of scholars who believe there's quite a long delay there in time. The Lord kept him waiting for quite some time, as it were, till, uh, till Habakkuk had cooled down uh, a little. That's the suggestion, at least, of some. Um, the book may well cover a period of time. Certainly, the last um, part, the, the, the third chapter, the psalm of Habakkuk, may have been written later. What we do know is this. The book, as it is, as it is finally arranged, as we now have it, has been arranged in this way to teach us, through the prophet's experience, a very great and important lesson. It is perfectly clear whether it took a number of years to compile, or whether it was all uh, um, compiled, written within a matter of months, the way it's been arranged and the way it's now given to us in God's word is to bring home with the maximum effect the lesson that the Holy Spirit wants to teach. Habakkuk has been variously dated. As you can see, this book is a point of controversy and discussion. It's been dated as early as Isaiah's day, um, 721 BC, and it has been dated as late as Alexander the Great's day, which was 333, right off that uh, um, um, chart on the, on the board. These extreme 
uh, views require an adjustment of the text if you act to accept them. Generally, it's been placed or dated between these two extremes, the majority putting it in the days of the good king, Josiah. Some have put it as early as in the days of Manasseh, and they feel a time of Manasseh in particular um, would uh, adequately describe conditions such as uh, Habakkuk is crying out to the Lord about. But most generally, uh, it has been placed by conservative scholars in this period from Josiah to Jehoiakim, in that period. It seems reasonably clear that we cannot date this little book with, um, after 586 BC, the fall of Jerusalem, because the whole problem that Habakkuk faces is tied up with the total devastation and deportation of God's people. That is his problem that the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, are going to um, devastate the land as a judgment from God and deport the people. So we cannot very well uh, date the book later than 586. Nor can we really date it earlier than the reign of Manasseh. Um, because of the phrase in Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse Five, I am doing a work in your days. I am doing a work in your days. Then verse 6, I am rousing the Chaldeans. Now this means that we have got to find, as it were, a generation. And therefore the earliest we can go back really to bring it within a generation of, of the fall of Jerusalem is the last days of Manasseh, if that. If that, uh, it would be more safe to put it in the days of Josiah and on. It seems therefore um, clear that we that this prophecy that I am working a work in your days, I am raising up the Chaldeans, is not a long-sighted prophecy such as Isaiah. Um, gave in, in Isaiah 46 to 48. If you want to make a note of that, go away and read it. And you will see there Isaiah prophesies of the Babylonian exile um, looking right over the centuries to it. This is quite clear that it is a contemporary prophecy. Habakkuk was saying, in your days, the people to whom he was speaking, the Lord's going to do this in your days. You aren't going to believe it. When you see it, you'll hardly believe it, but the Lord's going to raise up the Chaldeans in your day. And this um, means that we have somehow got to put it within the, the um, height of the power of Babylon, which was from 625 onwards. So we have this date, 586, as one date that we can't go later than, 
and we had 625, which is roughly at the beginning of Josiah's reign, um, that we can't really go very much before. Between these two dates, 625 and 600 BC, we can um, date this book of Habakkuk. More explicit, we cannot dogmatically be. We ought to remark that the psalm which we have in Habakkuk chapter 3 is of particular interest. Again, this is a technical point. But it is of particular interest because we believe it embodies the original structure of the Psalms. In other words, you will note that it has at the beginning a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet according to Shigioneth, and at the end it ends to the choir master with stringed instruments. Now in the Psalter, due to the fact that the Psalms were written one after another in columns and very compact, these superscriptions and subscriptions got mixed up. The result is that in our Psalter today, we have all of it jammed at the top. You remember when we, when we studied the Psalter, we, we discovered how wonderful it was just to put the little line through and bring the, take the musical uh, notes uh, away and um, uh, fix them to the previous, the preceding psalm. Uh, here you have what is probably uh, the original structure of the Psalms and, in fact, the greatest evidence that what Dr. Thurtle uh, discovered about the Psalter is correct. I leave that because that is, after all, only technical. Now, is there anything about the background of Habakkuk that we can discover? We know nothing about Habakkuk apart from this book. We know less than we do of Naum, and that's saying something. Professor Ellison has said of him, there is no prophet of whom less can be affirmed with more certainty. Um, there is, however, just uh, a little uh, of reasonably clear indirect evidence as to the general background. Um, the name Habakkuk. Um, has caused quite an amount of discussion. Jeremy and others, including uh, right down to the present time, Luther and later than that, tell us that it comes from the Hebrew root meaning to clasp, and therefore they have translated it to embrace. Well, it's a very lovely thought. Here we have a man, um, a man called Habakkuk. His name means embracing. And he had a great battle about embracing the purpose of God. But finally, he embraced it. Finally, he got through and he clasped to himself the purpose of the Lord and went through with the Lord. Well, there's a very wonderful thought in that. But it's doubtful. Then others have said that it means wrestler. And um, again, there's a wonderful thought if his name meant wrestler. Because uh, it, it, he is a picture of a man wrestling with a problem. Wrestling with a problem. And finally, like Jacob, he's broken. And he comes out a different man with a deeper, fuller ministry. But as if I'm afraid to explode a lot of our theories, there are many modern scholars who trace it to an Assyrian word which means vegetable or plant. <laughs> and, um, we cannot, I'm afraid, uh, find any real meaning in that.
We do not know where he came from. We do not know whether he was high-born or low-born. We do not know anything about his parentage. We don't know anything about his tribe. We don't know what part of the land he lived in. We know almost nothing about the prophet Habakkuk. His name is, uh, we have very little that we can say with certainty about it, his background also. There are some other things we might mention. Some believe that Habakkuk was a Levite and a member of the temple choir because of the musical and liturgical um, arrangement and composition of the psalm in Habakkuk 3. They say this is quite clear that it is Levitical, that he belonged to the temple choir, because in the original there is this little pronoun my, where they've cut it out now because they felt it just couldn't be there. So the choir master are my stringed instruments. And... Um, uh, this, they say, is a, an indication that this was a man who, in fact, was in the temple choir. That was his job. He was a Levite attached to the temple. And this was why he was so concerned, so burdened, and that's why he comes to this wonderful little conclusion in the middle of this book. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let the earth keep silence before him. Then again, others have felt that he was one of the professional prophets. Now, do not misunderstand that word professional. We mean by that, that none of the other prophets, generally speaking, referred to themselves as prophets. This is what some feel. I'm not sure that it can, in fact, be supported, because if you look in Haggai and Zechariah, and some of the others, you will discover they are described, as far as we know, by themselves as the prophet. However, these say, he was one who called himself Habakkuk the prophet. And even when he wrote the, wrote the, um, the psalm, he headed it uh, by Habakkuk the prophet. And therefore, they point us to 1 Chronicles chapter 25 and verse 1, which tells us that there were um, a certain order of Levites set aside to prophesy with harps and stringed instruments in the service of the Lord. And uh, these say that they believe that Habakkuk, because of his little word on my stringed instruments, was in fact one of the prophets, the Levitical prophets attached to the temple choir. Again, we have really no definite, clear-cut evidence it must remain, for the most part, uh, speculation. It would be very interesting if Habakkuk was uh, a Levite. And one has a feeling that he may well have been a Levite. The atmosphere of this psalm seems somehow uh, to be priestly in that sense. And therefore it may well be true, but we cannot say it with absolute certainty. Of all this, we are not sure. But it is clear that the historical and political background was that of the last troubled years of Judah, from King Josiah to King Zedekiah. These last years, this last half century of Judah's history, troubled, unhappy years. 
The, this period began with the overthrow of Assyria and the destruction of Nineveh in 612 BC uh, by the Babylonians and the defeat by them of Pharaoh Necho at Carchemish in 605 BC, which was one of the great decisive battles of antiquity because it finished off the power of Egypt. Babylon became the supreme power in that area of the world. Some three years previous to that great battle, the good king Josiah had mistakenly gone out to war and battle with the same Pharaoh Necho and had lost his life. You will remember that. Where Hezekiah triumphed and turned to the Lord, Josiah failed and went out on the battlefield rather like Zwingli did in la more latter years and lost his life uh, on the battlefield. When King Josiah, the last hope of God's faithful people, uh, was gone when he died, and their last hope was gone, Judah became a vassal of Egypt, and Egypt put on the throne puppet kings. Uh, this man, Jehoahaz, they put upon the throne as a puppet, the Quisling king, uh, simply doing what they wanted and following out their orders, uh, and so on and so forth. When Babylon decisively defeated Egypt at Carchemish in 605 BC, Judah was at their mercy for the last troubled years of her life. Um, she just became a vassal of Babylon, and of course, in the end, um, just became a playground uh, for uh, Nebuchadnezzar's army. That was until 586 when finally um, the last great siege of Jerusalem, Jerusalem was razed to the ground and the population deported. Now this period, of which we can speak with some certainty, which was the background of the prophet Habakkuk, was a period marked after the strength and purity of the reign of King Josiah, it was marked by weak puppet kings, by political insecurity, by uh, steady spiritual decline and unfaithfulness on the part of the people, of corruption, it was marked by corruption and compromise in every part of national life. It saw the successive ravagings of the land and the successive deportations of the population of Jerusalem, three in all, the final being the great siege of Jerusalem. And whilst these ravagings of, the, of Judah and Jerusalem were taking place, the whole economy of the country was slowly running down and breaking up. So you can imagine, these were terrible days. When, when Habakkuk spoke of the fig tree failing, the vine just not, the, no, no, no flocks and herds uh, and so on, he was speaking of what he was actually beginning to see happen. The economy was breaking up. 
that the, the farmer was, was too afraid to do anything. There, there were great armies encamped upon his land that were feeding off of it. He, he was being robbed and pillaged of everything. The economy of the country was being ruined. It was also the period of Jeremiah's ministry, because you will remember that Jeremiah began his ministry in the reign of Josiah when he was only a very young man and went on till after the fall of Jerusalem. And I wonder just how great an influence Jeremiah had on Habakkuk. Because, you know, Jeremiah's ministry was a dark and woeful ministry. Um, you remember, it was, in fact, the reason why poor um, Jeremiah had such arguments with the Lord. He wanted, he would have much preferred to have brought a cheerful, uh, joyful message. But no, the Lord tied him to one that was full of the darkest and most terrible forebodings and forewarnings. And I wonder how much influence this had got upon Habakkuk when finally the Lord revealed to him what he was about to do. And uh, this became the great problem of um, Habakkuk. You see, if, if Habakkuk lived um, earlier, if, as some scholars believe, he lived uh, earlier in the reign of Manasseh, then Nahum and Zephaniah would have been his contemporaries. If he lived later and, and went, lived on into the actual siege and through it, then um, uh, Daniel and Z Ezekiel would have been his contemporaries as well as Obadiah. We just don't know again. All we can say with certainty is that it was these troubled years of insecurity and breakup and unfaithfulness that were the background to the prophet Habakkuk. There are many legends about Habakkuk. I don't know why there are so many legends in uh, Jewish uh, legends and stories about Habakkuk. He seems to have been a favorite for them. Um, one is one uh, story is that he was in fact the son of the Shunammite woman. Do you remember Elisha uh, and Shunammite woman when she when he he told her she would have a son and then later her son died and he raised him up to life again. Uh, well, the story is that he was that um, son. I think it can be discounted. Another old Jewish story is that he is the watchman mentioned by Isaiah in Isaiah 21.6. That really is an amazing story. Uh, where um, Isaiah says, you know, about um, uh, the watchman who was waiting um, on the walls to look for Babylon. But you can understand, you see, how wonderful it is that these stories, which have been current in Jewish circles for so many centuries, never got into Scripture. It's one of the remarkable little asides um, when Paul said, we have not followed cunningly devised fables. Isn't it interesting? There is, of course, another little book called Bell and the Dragon, which some of you may have read, an apocryphal work, which speaks of Habakkuk, who at one time uh, felt very sorry for Daniel, was suddenly caught up by the hair and planted in the, dan in the lion's den where he gave uh, Daniel a meal and was then taken up again. There are many, many stories about Habakkuk, and it is quite remarkable that we have so many legends and uh, stories extant uh, about uh, Habakkuk, his life and his ministry, and yet in the word of God itself, we know next to nothing about it. Quite remarkable. So I can only um, conclude from that 
that the Holy Spirit obviously does not mean us to know an awful lot about the background of Habakkuk, except the actual historical and political side of it. Now, what is the key to this book? Because that, after all, is the most important thing of all. In this book, we have a picture of a servant of the Lord beset with very real perplexity about the one who he serves. He's not got any perplexity. So, at least if he's got some perplexity, no doubt. But his real perplexity is not God's people in all their unfaithfulness and backsliding. Nor is his perplexity about godless nations like the Chaldeans. No. His perplexity is about the Lord. That's the perplexity he's got. He has... He's full of doubt and questioning and here in this book we've got a picture of this kind of servant of the Lord perplexed about the one he is serving full of doubt and questions being led into rest and the triumph of faith his circumstances do not change in fact they get worse but his spirit changes and so whereas at the beginning of the story he is, he is defeated, he is collapsing spiritually in his relationship with the Lord. Doubts and fears and suspicions and reservations are coming in. And the communion between him and the Lord is becoming marred and blocked. At the end of the book, he's come right through into a new place altogether. Now, we see this by just lifting out one or two uh, little words in this book. If you look in Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 3, the first little word we have is why. Habakkuk 1 verse 3, why dost thou show me iniquity and look upon perverseness? And then in verse 13, in the middle of the verse, wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously and holdest thy peace when the wicked swalloweth up the man that is more righteous than he. He has a why and a wherefore about the Lord. And many of us have got whys and wherefores about the Lord, and we won't often admit them. We're not as honest as the prophet Habakkuk. But we've got a why and we've got a wherefore. We're filled with questions and doubts about the ways of the Lord. You see, we've been taught one thing, and we've got preconceptions about the Lord. And because of these preconceptions, we've got doubts when somehow or other he doesn't seem to act along the lines we expect him to, or think he ought to. We've got a why and a wherefore. Then I want you to notice the answer in chapter 2 and verse 4. The righteous or the just shall live by faith or by his faithfulness. The righteous shall live by his faithfulness. This is the answer the Lord gives to the why and the wherefore. In fact, it is no answer. 
Now here is an important point. The Lord never really answers the why and the wherefore of Habakkuk. Oh, he tells him about the Chaldeans, and by so doing, raises a far more serious problem in his child's mind. It is his answer to the first question that the Lord well knew would raise a far more serious and deeper problem for his servant. His answer is that the righteous or the just shall live in his faithfulness. That's his answer. The third thing I want you to note is in chapter 2 and verse 20. The Lord is in his holy temple that all the earth keeps silent before him. And there's a very interesting word used for silence. It's the word that we often say when we say hushed. Let everything be hushed. That's all. Now here, the prophet has come to a new place. His why and his wherefore is gone. And he's come to a place where he says, let everything be hushed. Let there be no more of these whys and these wherefores. Let it all be hushed and quiet. Let it be silent. The Lord is in his holy temple. In other words, the Lord is enthroned. He is in the place where he ought to be. Where he is meant to be. Therefore, let everything be quiet. Our position is silent. Like a great notice, as it were, silence. No questions. And finally, if you look at the last part of the prophecy, in the last verses of uh, chapter 3, from verse 16 to the end, you find the worship of faith. So what do we see? We see a child of God, a servant of the Lord, passing out of questions and fears and doubts and suspicions about the Lord into first a silence and then a worship. Now, isn't this like Job? Isn't this like Job? First, you will remember, there's all the why and the wherefore. And a lot of the chapters of Job are taken up with the whys and the wherefores. And the further he goes into it, the more troubled he becomes. The more he loses his peace and his relationship with the Lord comes under a terrible shadow and cloud. And then, after all his friends have done their best, finally the Lord steps in and speaks. And he makes an answer. But you know, he never, do you remember? The Lord never answered Job. He never, in fact, answered. He just said to him, he gave him, a, as it were, a lesson on zoology. Look at the hippopotamus. Look at the crocodile. Who made them? And why did he make them? And Job just had no answer. And finally Job said, Once have I spoken, twice. But now I shall put my hand over my mouth, and I will speak no more. Silence. It's the same. And what is the last picture you've got of Job? Here's an altar. And he's offering something up, and he's worshipping the Lord. It is remarkable that we've got the same thing. The problem is a bigger one. With Job, it was personal. Here in Habakkuk, it is a much more general problem, a bigger one. But you see, the way that the prophet, does, this child of the Lord, is led from out of his wise and his wellfores into a silence, which is the first step. 
Oh, when you and I in our problems, either in God's work or God's purpose or in our personal private problems, when you and I are led into a silence, it's the first great step in coming into a deep knowledge of the Lord. The wise and the wherefores, they may be important in their phase, in our going on, but you know they in the end get us nowhere. When we find out what it is to be silent, the fear of the Lord, the beginning of wisdom, when we learn what it is to hush ourselves, to be quiet, to be silent before him, we are taking the first steps in a real and deep knowledge of the Lord, after and according to faith. For our experience with the Lord will never be based upon answers to whys and wherefores, but will always come through a deep faith relationship to the Lord. So you may have your why and you may have your wherefore, but if you're going to go on with the Lord, there will come a day when a hand will go over your mouth, your own hand, and you will quieten yourself. And you will learn to sit in silence, knowing this, that though you've got all the evidence seemingly to the contrary around you, the Lord is in his holy temple, and our place is just to be quiet. You know what? That, that's not where the Lord will leave you. He never left Job there, and he never left Habakkuk there. No, he will lead us on to the worship of faith. Job had a ministry at the end that he never had at the beginning. That we see at the, very, at the very end of the book. He, what was now Job's ministry? Why, before, the, the devil went in before the Lord and said, if you, the, the Lord was able to say to the devil, have you seen anyone like Job? But tell me, what was the relationship between the Lord and Job at the end? What new, what new lesson was he to principalities and powers that watch on? of the manifold wisdom of God. It's the same here. Habakkuk left behind one level of ministry altogether and into the deepest waters passed onto a new level of ministry at the end. This psalm is intentional because it reveals to us that the prophet was led out of his his quiet room. How long shall I cry violence and you don't hear? Into the great, oh Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. His ministry came back. But now it had got something behind it it never had before. And this really is what we wish to underline this evening. The essential message of this book arises out of an argument that the prophet has with the Lord over the mystery of the Lord's sovereignty and ways. Now, what is this problem? Now, I've heard one or two people talking about this, and I'm very, very interested, because it seems that some people think, now, listen carefully, they think that Habakkuk's problem was faith. In a sense, they're right. But it's not as simple as that. 
Listen, Habakkuk's faith as far as the Lord, the existence of the Lord, and the grace of the Lord, and the purpose of the Lord, and the power of the Lord, and even the end of the Lord, never wavered for an instant. That's not the problem. So if you all think that the problem of Habakkuk is that he lost his faith, he became a doubting Todd. Oh no, that was not his doubt. It was not his doubt. No, you see, Habakkuk had been complaining about the inactivity of the Lord. Now this was not a superficial questioning of Habakkuk when he said why to the Lord first. No, he'd been engaged in a ministry of travail. He'd seen the ruins. He saw what was happening. He saw the apostasy and backsliding. He saw the faithlessness. He saw the puppet king. He saw all that was a dishonor and a disgrace to the Lord. And out of what he saw, there came not criticism. No, but a ministry of travail. So that he cried out continually, day and night, as it were, to the Lord. Lord, do something about what is happening. Justice is perverted. The poor are being swallowed up, and so on and so forth. His question was, why doesn't the Lord act? If the Lord really has got this purpose concerning his temple, and concerning the land, and concerning the people, and concerning our Messiah, why does he not come out and do something? Can't he see all the iniquity and sin? Why doesn't he strike them dead? Or why doesn't he come out and, and take hold of these men who are leading the nation into ruin? Why is he so inactive? It's not as if we're not crying. You must remember that you see it is probable that um, Habakkuk had lived toward the end of the days of Josiah. And he remembered those, that godly band of men and women who were gathered around the king Josiah. These men and women would have prayed. Oh, the shock when King Josiah was killed. There was terrible shock to those faithful men and women. How they must have got on their knees and wailed before the Lord. Habakkuk knew all about that, no doubt. Even if he hadn't lived in it, it would have come to his ears. Why doesn't the Lord do something? Don't you feel like that sometimes when you see the state of the church, when you see the state of God's people, and you cry out to the Lord, why doesn't he do something? He seems to be silent. Some people say he doesn't hear, or it's not the time. Oh, we thank God for Habakkuk. He didn't give up. He really had been engaged in the ministry, and now comes out his question, why doesn't the Lord do something? And so he does the best thing. He goes to the Lord, and he tells the Lord. He has this out with the Lord. Lord, he says, why don't you do something? I'm crying out violence all the time. I'm telling you about the condition. You don't do anything. Oh, now the Lord, in his infinite grace, speaks with Habakkuk. He says, Habakkuk, I am doing a work in, I am working a work in your days that you will not believe if you should see. Oh, says Habakkuk, really? Now this is interesting. Let's hear what you're doing, Lord. I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. And the prophet is horrified. Now, I'm not just saying that dramatically. The prophet is horrified. He's shocked by what seems 
seems to him, although he dare not say it, the immorality of the Lord. What? You're answering my prayer by doing an immoral thing? Oh, says the Pope. But just wait, I think we're jumping rather ahead. You just look at what Habakkuk has to say, what the Lord has to say to Habakkuk about these people. I mean, the Lord has a great sense of humor, you know. And when he speaks with his servant, as so often with those who know him best, there is a bit of humor here. He deliberately describes the Chaldeans in the darkest terms. You see what the Lord says about the Chaldeans, who he's raising up. Well, no wonder poor Habakkuk's got a problem. Now, listen, that's the way the Lord deals with us when we've got a bit too much up here. That's just what the Lord starts to do with us. He starts to present us with a problem that's too big. And, of course, at the beginning, we won't accept it. We will not accept that the problem's too big for us. No. We're going to master it. We're going to get through on this. We're going to, we're going to take this problem. We're not going to let it get the better of us. All right, then. So the Lord describes to Habakkuk, his servant, something about this, um, about this nation he's, ra he's raising up. And what about poor, poor Habakkuk? He's horrified. The prophet is thoroughly shocked by the Lord. How can the Lord use something to deal with evil and wrong, more evil and wrong than that which it is dealing with. You get it? Let me put it in, in contemporary language. How can the Lord deal with the Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox Church, with communism? How can he do it? Was ever the Russian Orthodox Church worse than communism? This is the problem. The prophet is horrified. How can the Lord take a godless nation and use them to deal with his own people? It's immoral, he says. And so he comes to the conclusion that the Lord's attitude to, to humanity is an attitude as if they were so many fish to be hooked and caught and used. And he says so in rather bold terms, especially if you read it in uh, the Revised Standard Version, you will perhaps be a little bit shocked about what Habakkuk charges the Lord. Now, listen, the question has gone beyond a question. It's become an arraignment. The prophet is accusing the Lord. And he says, look here, you can't do this. Are you not purer? Are your eyes not are so pure that they can't behold iniquity? How can you use such a thing? Now, we have to place on record that the Lord never, ever answers that question. And if you go to the Lord today and say, Lord, why do you use the devil? You'll not get an answer to it. If you go to the Lord and say, why do you use communism, fascism, or any of the other isms? The Lord won't give you an answer. He always gives the one answer. What is his answer? Oh, Habakkuk thinks he's scored a point now with the Lord. Oh, he's made, his, made out his case and he goes off, as it were, into his watchtower, goes on with his ministry, the sentinels, the watchmen. He says, I'm going to sit here, he says in chapter 2 and verse 1, I'm going to stand to watch, station myself on the tower and look forth to see what he will say to me and what he will answer concerning my complaint. I've got the Lord now. 
Well, now she, do you see what I mean by, by what I said earlier about the servant of the Lord getting too big? Here is a servant of the Lord who really had, unwittingly thinks he's scoring with the Lord himself. Now the answer is always the same. It is so simple. The law, the law doesn't actually answer the problem. He doesn't solve the problem. But what he says is this. The just, or the righteous one, shall live in his faithfulness. Now the word is faithfulness. It includes faith. But it's bigger than faith. Not only as Paul takes it up to put our faith in the law, but to become absolutely full of faith. In other words, faithful, utterly committed, absolutely trusting, the righteous one shall live by his faithfulness. You see, the Lord requires implicit trust in his own because all his work in every aspect is built on the principle of faith. And he reaches his end in his own sovereign way. Now you and I can hamper the Lord unless we are brought in his purpose and in his work to a position of absolute faith. Because often we think we know how the Lord's going to get from point A to point B. And often the way the Lord reaches point B from point A is by, by means which seem to contradict everything. But he gets there. That's the point. He finally gets there. <coughs> you see, knowledge or human reason, by itself, however noble, will lead to a being, to a being puffed up. The phrase before that is, the, uh, um, he is puffed up. He is not upright. Let me read it to you here in this standard version. The Lord says this, Behold, his soul is puffed up, it's not upright in him. And the word is an awfully interesting one, this word upright. It's not straight. Now, what does this mean? You see, on the one side we've got someone who's got it all up here. And the, and the other side we have someone who has it here. And the Lord is saying that the righteous one shall live in his favor. He'll go on. But the other one who's puffed up, He'll, he'll not go on. He'll fail. What really is the idea behind this? Well, it's just this, that human reason and human knowledge, on its own, however noble, will always lead to an arrogance in God's work, which can be seen in the beginning with the prophet Habakkuk. It leads to a closeness. Now, this is this word upright, straightness. Something comes in which is no longer straight in your relationship with the Lord. It's crooked. It's no longer upright. It's because your intellect has presented you now with a first-class problem about the Lord. And you're so determined that this is going to get an answer that you've got crooked. 
The Lord can't move you in the same way. He can't, he can't use you in the same way because you won't let him. You've become crooked. It's no, you're no longer straight. You're no longer open. There's something that's closed. I wish we could really put that right over. Such always leads to failure. It leads to death. But the righteous one, living in faith, lives. By his faith, he lives. It's not that knowledge or reason is wrong, but that they are wholly inadequate in God's work and purpose. Now, that's the point. What was the Lord teaching Habakkuk? Not that knowledge is wrong. Not that his intellect is wrong. Not that his powers of reasoning are wrong. No. But that they're inadequate. That when you're dealing with God, they're just inadequate. And that God must lead us to live on the principle of faith. Otherwise, all the time we'll be sitting down and refusing to budge. He'll not be able to mold us. He'll not be able to use us. Because, you see, this niggardly reason is getting in the way all the time with what you think the Lord should do and how you think the Lord should act, and so on and so forth. What the Lord requires is this, if I may put it this way. He requires knowledge and reason in the hands of faith. That's all. And this is what Habakkuk learns. And in learning it, he becomes silent. And it is a tremendous thing when we learn this lesson and become silent. And then the Lord leads him from his silence into a new ministry of travailing prayer and worship. And all this has got a lot for us in these days. Why is the Lord so inactive? Why is the Lord so seemingly uncaring? Why does he not deal with the error and the ruined state of his church? Why is it that we can cry out to the Lord about the state of things and he seems not to care, not to act, not to answer? He does care. And he is at work. But we must not be surprised if the answer to our prayer leads us into a situation such as the one Habakkuk was in. You know, we may take hold of the Lord, plead with him to do something about his church. And do you know how he might answer? By communism or a new fascism, or the World Council of Churches, or something else, which he will take up and use and force every true believer into a new relationship with the Lord and with one another. That's the point. He has done it elsewhere. He's done it in Russia. He's done it in Eastern Europe. Force God's children together if they will not come together any other way, God will, in the end, completely realize his purpose. He'll do it. See, in Habakkuk's day, the Lord used Babylon to purify his own 
and to produce a remnant that return to the land and rebuild Jerusalem and the house and repopulate the land. You understand? By them, by that, that remnant, his purpose is realized. But how did the Lord get such a pure remnant? You know it was the most remarkable thing that when that remnant returned to the land, never again was an idol found in the land. God, by Babylon, had purged his people of idolatry. See? It was done. Habakkuk couldn't understand that. Knowledge or reason could never really appreciate or understand that. Uh, Habakkuk's mind would have reeled if the Lord tried to explain to him what he was doing. No, no. All the Lord required of Habakkuk was faith. The Chaldeans, the Babylonians, this is what the Lord's doing. Poor Habakkuk. He could not understand it. He couldn't see exactly what it meant. But you see, in fact, we can see what the Lord was doing. In fact, he was raising up Babylon to, to purify and deal with the situation amongst his own. And later, he was going to raise up another man called Cyrus, of a new, head of a new era, as it were, who would let the people of God go back. Well, you see, for the faithful Habakkuk, as he views the prospect, it's a baptism of fire for him. It's a fiery trial of his faith. But you see, the Lord's going to give him hinds feet to walk and to live in the difficulty. This is what, what we can say about the prophet Habakkuk. We might just say that it's a great thing when the Lord shocks you. And I would like to know really how many people in this room have been shocked by the Lord. Because you know, when the Lord really shocks us, it's often the beginning of a real relationship with him. We have no idea that we've got our own molded idea and conception of what he is. Oh, that the Lord will shock us like he shocked you shocked him. I poor Daniel, when he saw some of the visions, he was sick afterwards for a number of days. He was so shocked. We need to be shocked. Every person who's seen the Lord has fell at his feet as if dead. We need such a shock. That's the kind of shock. Because, you see, we've got such a petty conception of the Lord. We can mold him. We can push him. We can put our words into him and our thoughts into him. We need to be shocked like Habakkuk was. So that all the wise and the wherefores go and take a back seat. And it's our knowledge of the Lord that counts. See how, how Habakkuk ends up? Oh, he says, it's all going to rack and ruin. It's all upside down. I don't understand it. My reason, it's finished. But I will joy in the God of my soul. He's going to give me hinds feet. What has happened to dear old Habakkuk? He's coming to a new experience, that's all. Now he knows the Lord. And so his, his, his great intellect, his real intellect, with all its questions, he can let it go. He can say to it, shh, sit down. 
You be quiet. You see? That's what it is to know the Lord. Sometimes to be led along a line which seems contrary to all that you've ever known or been taught. Because you know the Lord. Then shall we know if we follow on to know the Lord. Well, I'm going to leave it there. From this, then, we learn that the key that opens this book is here in this chapter 2, verse 4, the righteous one or the just shall live by faith. God requires not only faith, but faithfulness. And here we have faith challenge faith taught and faith experienced. Has God challenged your faith yet? When you can tie up everything, when you can tape everything, you haven't had a challenge to your faith. It's only when God gives you a problem that you've got the challenge to real faith. That's when God will teach you what faith is. And it's then that you will learn to experience then Heinz feet are given to learn what it is to live in the high places. We leave it there then this evening. The Lord, we ask the Lord, shall we just bless that?